U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by Christoph, the EXO, and the guy with the fist to his head for some reason. Oh, I was, I was think, I'm trying a new salute. It's still in the works. It's not great. Let me just do the traditional one. There we go. Uh, that was sloppy, but I'll I'll take it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Captain, for having me. I was just trying to salute in respect. Sorry for that goofy, uh, half-baked one at the beginning. Okay. So, so do you know what time of month this is? Uh, yes. It's February. It's Black History Month. It is close to Valentine's Day and traditionally well, one of the colder months of winter. Well, you nailed it with your second. Okay, good. Yes, it is Black History Month. So I thought today we would talk about some notable African Americans in the United States Navy. Cool. That sounds great. So are you ready to get underway? Let's do it, man. All right. So first... The first uh, person we're going to be talking about is named James Fortin. He was an American abolitionist and businessman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was born September 2nd, 1766, and Whoa. passed away March 4th, 1842. Wow. So we're going to go ahead and get into his background. So he was one of two children of Thomas and Margaret Fortin who was a Philadelphia sailmaker. And Thomas Fortin was the grandson of a slave who had freed himself. Now, Thomas did die young. We think it's because he fell from a high place. Hey. He was a sailmaker. Maybe he was also installing sails and slip and fall. Well, you said... accident. 1760s to 1840s ish, right? That's that's a pretty good run, or maybe I misheard you. That was his dad. Oh, okay, sorry. So James, the the gentleman we're talking about, I he see. started to he started to work at the age of seven to help his mother and sister. So his first job was as a chimney sweep, and then he became a grocery store clerk. He also attended the African school run by the Quaker abolitionist Anthony Benzet, who founded it to educate black children free of charge. His mother actually insisted that he continued in school, but by the age of nine, he had left school to work full time. His early years of work became a measure for his progress in life and his career. So at the age of 14, during the Revolutionary War, he served on the privateer Royal Lewis, commanded by Captain Stephen DeCanter Sr. The Royal Lewis was, a, was captured by a Royal Navy warship by Captain John Beasley. That name sounds familiar. I think we've spoken of him in the past. Possibly, yes. Now, Beasley was impressed with Fortin. Fortin recalled that Beasley offered him the opportunity to be educated in Great Britain with his son, Henry. But he told him, quote, I have been taken prisoner for the liberties of my country and never will prove a traitor of her interest. Nice. So Beasley saw to it that he was treated as a prisoner of, as a prisoner of war alongside the rest of the crew. The prisoners were then all transported to HMS Jersey that was moored in Wallabout Bay, which is going to be the site of the Brooklyn Naval Yard later. Wow, cool. You do remember how the prison ships were, right? Yes, in, uh, in the New York Harbor area, and they were overcrowded and not maintained by the British, and a lot of people died. Very brutal, yes. So he was actually very fortunate because he was exchanged after only seven months. 
only seven months? I was not anticipating you would say months at the end of that. That's a long time still, but I guess in contrast to some of the other folks that were there much longer, oof, what a fate. Folks that were there for years or who never left. Right. So he was released on parole after giving a promise not to fight in the war. And he walked from Brooklyn to Philadelphia to return to his mother and his sister. He then signed up on a merchant ship, which sailed to England. And he lived and worked there for more than a year in a London shipyard. Huh. He then returned to Philadelphia in 1790, where he became an apprentice to a sailmaker, a guy named Robert Bridges. This was his father's former employer oh. and a family friend. Very cool. Horton learned quickly in the sailmaking business, and he actually was very good in the sail loft. This is where the sails were cut and sewn. And before too long, he was actually promoted to foreman. So when he retired in 1798, he bought the sail loft. Wow. Nice. He developed a tool to help maneuver the large sails, and by 1810, he had built up one of the most successful sail lofts in Philadelphia. He created the conditions he worked for in society, employing both black and white workers. And because of his business acumen, he became one of the wealthiest Philadelphians in the city. That's awesome. I guess, I mean, yeah, sailmaking seems like such a, a niche skill. But if you're good at it, everybody's coming to you. And it was the age of sales, so... Everybody needed sales. Right. I mean, it, that, the whole economy depended on that, so incredible. And if you're really good at making the really big ones or the really big boats, hey. That's right. So James married twice. His first wife, Martha Beatty of Darby Township in Delaware County, died after only a few months of marriage, 1804. So two years later, he married Charlotte Van Dyne. So James and Charlotte had nine children. Robert Bridges, Fortin, Harry, uh, Margareta, Harriet, Sarah, Louisa, Charletta, William Days, Mary Teresa, Thomas Willing Francis, and James Jr. Robert and James Jr. took over the family business. That's, um, it always surprises me maybe not surprise interests me what what the common household size was during different eras and um i know if you're one of the more wealthy philadelphians which is probably one of the wealthier cities in america uh having nine kids although difficult was probably made a little bit easier with uh vast amounts of wealth well, not only that, but remember, this is the day and age when there were no child labor laws. So, oh, you know, yeah. you put your kids to work. That's right. You weren't just making kids. You were making employees. That's right. So I think if you've ever been in a company where they're like, hey, we're a family, but you're not really a family. You're just like, hey, we're employee-employer relationship. That's kind of where it ends. Back then, they were a family. Yep. And they hired, I guess, uncles and aunts to fill out the ranks? Well, yeah. Oh. I, I, get, I mean, I can only presume. Okay. I'm going to see about making my own business, if you know what I'm saying. You're going to have to get a lot more children. Well, if you say so. I do. I you do. Yeah, I, I heard you. Came I out. saw you. Yeah. You were very clear. Right. Sorry, I didn't mean to think that you were ambiguous. So, tell me more about... This wonderful guy. So the children grew up in and committed to the abolitionist movement. Robert, you know, named for his former boss and mentor, was a vigorous anti-slavery activist. William studied at the abolitionist Juanita Institute, and the sisters Harriet and Sarah Louisa married the prominent abolitionist brothers Robert Purvis and Joseph Purvis. 
They were educated at Amherst College and were the sons of a British immigrant and his wife, who was a free woman of color. So the all of these guys used their great wealth and their public lives in public service. Margarita, for example, was a lifelong educator and became an officer of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1845. And then Fortune's granddaughter, Charlotte Fortin Grimmick, became a poet, uh, theorist, and educator. Her diary from teaching men who were free and their children of the South after the Civil War became well-known. It was republished in scholarly editions in the 1980s. Wow. So back to Fortin himself, he, after he got well-established, in his 40s, he devoted both time and money to working for the national abolition of slavery and gaining civil rights for blacks. They were severely discriminated against in Pennsylvania and the North and generally could not vote or serve on juries. But he felt a sense of obligation to work on these issues. And in 1801, he was among the signers of a petition to the U.S. Congress calling for the abolition of the slave trade and the mod- modification of the fugitive state law of 1793. In 1813, he wrote a pamphlet called Letters from a Man of Color, which he did not put his name on. Um, He denounced a bill under consideration in the Pennsylvania legislature that required all black immigrants to Pennsylvania to be registered with the state. And he protested treating the free blacks any differently than whites. Some legislators were worried about the number of free blacks who migrated into the state competing with, you know, white laborers. So they're mm-hmm. like, we're coming after your jobs. Anyway, uh, in addition, they knew fugitive, sla- fugitive slaves often used Pennsylvania as a destination or byway to other free areas since it was bordered by slave states to the south. So... In his letters, Fortin believed that this bill was a step backward for black people or for black Pennsylvanians, which, of course, it is. Absolutely, yeah. H- having to register yourself because... Just yeah, because you're black? I think yeah. when you were saying that the first time, it made me think about the differences um, in laws and time frame. Like, so I remember passports were established around World War One time frame. Before that, everybody could just travel wherever they wanted there was there wasn't really a restriction and so after world war one they, they're like okay we don't really need these anymore can we repeal them and they're like no we like we like kind of enforcing and controlling who can come in or leave or what have you and so nowadays coming into a country and registering yourself and kind of declaring oh i'm only here for business or pleasure that's that seems more normal but back then it was unrestricted travel you could just in america in particular especially as a white person you just move somewhere just because you wanted to and set up your homestead and so this would have been drastically different you know just because they're black and it's another way to try to control right population so fortin wrote some letters and argued that the bill would violate the rights of any free blacks entering the state and set the people apart as somehow not equal to whites. He wanted the many respectable citizens of the black community to be recognized and valued. In the end, the bill failed and James Fortin became known for his succinct and passionate pamphlet. So in the early 19th century, some black and white Americans supported movements to quote, unquote, resettle free blacks on the African continent. We've discussed that in the past. Uh, Other options were also Canada and Haiti. In the late 18th century, the British had founded Freetown as a colony in present-day Sierra Leone for the resettlement of black Britons from London. So together with those black loyalists who wanted to leave Nova Scotia, So during the American Revolutionary War, the Crown had offered freedom to slaves who left Patriot masters. 
the British evacuated thousands of freed slaves along with their troops and resettled more than 3,000 black loyalists in Nova Scotia, where they gave them land. A number of others went to London or even the West Indies. So the American Colonization Society was formed in December of 1816, and it was organized to found the colony of Liberia in West Africa for a similar purpose to what the UK just did. It offered to help blacks go there voluntarily with provisions of aid for supplies, housings, and other materials. The society was made up of abolitionists, slaveholders, and missionaries, and its members supported voluntary relocation of free blacks and newly freed slaves to Africa. This was to solve the quote-unquote problem of blacks in American society. I know, I know. In the first two decades after the revolution, the number of free blacks rose significantly, due both to just the getting rid of slavery in the North and as well as a increase in manumissions in the South by men moved by revolutionary ideals. In some areas, the new competition for social resources resulted in a rise in racial demonstration against free blacks. Southerners wanted to remove them from their region because, you know, they're no longer owned by them, so they don't want them anywhere near them. Right. Racism. Yeah. Well, I think, um, well, even like when you were talking at the beginning, late 1700s in Pennsylvania, I guess perhaps with the exception of the Quakers that established that uh, African school, racism was pretty pervasive in the North and the South. And um, oh yeah, I when you were talking about also Pennsylvania was bordered by slave states. Uh, Virginia obviously went uh, to the Confederacy during the Civil War, but Maryland and Delaware did not, and they were still slave states. And D.C. actually had a huge number of slaves, even though it was the capital of the Union. So also close to Pennsylvania. So it's just there's a lot of um, sometimes it's not as uh, clear-cut as you would read in some textbooks, we'll say. And, and remember, about this time is when they started make changing the laws to where they can't acquire any new imprisoned people, which yeah. is why more and more free, freed blacks are around. Exactly, right. Um, so Northerners thought a new colony might give the blacks more independence and a chance to create their own society. The proposal was also supported by clergy who expected the black Americans to evangelize Christianity to Africans. News about the organization, especially racist remarks such by such leaders as Henry Clay of Kentucky, raised fears among many free blacks that the ACS proposed to deport them wholesale to Africa. In other words, we're going to kidnap you just like we kidnapped Maybe you, definitely your ancestor, ancestors, and we're going to ship you all across the water again, but we're just taking you back against your will. Mm. That's, that's bad. That's so bad. Yes, it is. Henry Clay. Yeah. That, that whole era was, I don't know, such a lot of powerful figures that were, had ideas and would would kind of ram them through, not, and maybe they did consider the impact, but it just seems like it had such a huge negative impact, but they were not either aware of or did not care about. Mm-hmm. So Fortin had supported Paul Coffey, who was a Boston shipbuilder. He transported in 1815 38 free blacks to Sierra Leone with the idea that they could make a better life when not impeded by white racism. Lofty ideal. You're not being constantly hated on. You might actually be happy. It's not, not cool that they got to relocate to, oh, a, yeah, whole, to a completely different, different company. Continent. Yeah. And I'm sure the locals there probably weren't crazy about them showing up. And it's just hate from a different direction. But he supported this because he was well aware of the continuing problems due to the harsh 
discrimination against black people in the United States. No, I I can understand that. I mean, obviously there's a problem, and uh, there were separatists that are like, hey, black people, white people just can't live together. Let's find a solution, and this is one of those. And then there were the integrationists that were, no, we can live together. It's just going to take work. And so we're going to see experiments being done like this. So to address community concerns and discuss the potential for colonization, James worked with Bishop Richard Allen of the African Methodist Apostle Church. This was the first independent black denomination in the United States. He also worked with Absalom Jones and James Glausker to organize a meeting on the topic in Philadelphia. They announced their meeting in January in January of 1817 at Bethel AME Church. And it drew over 3,000 people from Philadelphia. Hearing the strong views of this public forced a dramatic turning point for these guys. Hmm. By this time, most free blacks and slaves had been born in the United States and claimed it as their home country. Right. Uh, At the meeting, Fortin called for a vote, asking who favored colonization. No one, absolutely no one said yes. When he asked who was against it, the crowd thundered no. It, it, It was so loud, the hall was ringing. That's amazing. In spite of the difficulty, it's still your home. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So everyone claimed the U.S. as their own and wanted to gain their full civil rights there as citizens. Excellent. So after this meeting, Fortin and the ministers strongly opposed the AS, or ACS. And James later converted William Lloyd Garrison, who was a younger white abolitionist from Boston against these schemes as well. Fulton, uh, Fortin then helped draft a resolution of the sense of the public, which he and the other leaders sent to the Philadelphia Congress uh, congressional delegation. And in August, they published a longer address to the inhabitants of the city and county of Philadelphia, which attacked the colonization idea. So, you know, he absorbed all of the community's arguments And he noted that most American blacks had been in the United States for many generations now. And he's like, yeah, this is our land. Right. So the ACS, you know, they advertised Liberia as a place for opportunity. But the colony struggled to survive. And a lot of them died of disease. There were also other risks, such as re-enslavement by illegal slave traders and smugglers. Also, the relationships with the native Africans were not very good. Yeah, it's, it's not a very well-thought-out plan outside of, uh, yeah, let's put the black people over there instead of mm-hmm. let's, let's make something that makes sense for everyone, including, I mean, intruding on the people's land that live there already or uh, anticipating the dangers or... The, I, I, I find yeah, no the the thought stopped at let's put them over there right that's where all thinking stopped agreed or okay now how do we get them there I think that that was the next thought and then yep okay good luck you're on your own yeah <sighs> I I hadn't thought about the re-enslavement issue that's something that was uh, never crossed my mind because I know like Liberia speaks English today as a result of this colonization effort. Their capital is Monrovia because it was during the Monroe administration. Um, But the fact that you're in West Africa and there there are tribes that capture people in order to sell in the transatlantic transatlantic slave trade, I, I did just never thought that, yes, of course, there's a risk. You could be recaptured. Mm hmm. So after Haiti became established as an independent uh, black republic in 1804, some Americans were interested in immigrating there. In the early 1820s, President Jean-Pierre Boyer 
united all of the islands of Hispaniola under Haitian control. He also gained official recognition for the nation from France for the first time, because up until this time, France owned Haiti. Uh But the cost of this official recognition was high indemnity, which crippled them financially for many, many generations. And he directly appealed to American free blacks to immigrate there and help them develop it. Now, this did raise some complex issues in the United States. Despite Fulton's support for the new nation, he was opposed to the immigration for Americans. He firmly believed that that blacks should be allowed to play an equal role in their land of the United States. He consistently said that it was far better for them to fight for an um, egalitarian U.S. society rather than to flee the country. I mean, there's so many nations that have internal struggles of some sort or the other. And, I mean, there's always the choice of we can fight it, we can work through it, or we can just flee and just get rid of this as such a cesspool. And, uh, you know, you see people making the choice uh, all over the world. And uh, those that choose to stay in a difficult situation and just keep working through it, trying to do their best to to improve their home, I really admire. So James helped William Lloyd Garrison set up his newspaper, The Liberator, in 1831, and supported it financially. He frequently published letters in it as, quote, a colored man of Philadelphia. Garrison also wrote articles against colonization, describing the poor living conditions in Liberia. They wanted others to know that the ACS was not nice, was not necessarily working in the best interest of black Americans. So in his biography written by Julie Winch, there is a quote. By the 1830s, he was one of the most powerful African-American voices not just for men and women of color in his native city, but for many thousands more throughout the North. He knew how to use the press and the speaker's podium. He knew about building alliances, when to back down and when to press forwards with his agenda. His rise to prominence, his understanding of the nature of power and authority, his determination to speak out and be heard are object lessons in the realities of community politics. Disenfranchised he might have been, but voiceless, he never was. Awesome. So James managed his sale loft and stayed active in the abolitionist movement until very late in his life. He continued to write for the Liberator, and he died on March 4th, 1842, at the age of 75 in Philadelphia. Thousands of people, both black and white, attended his funeral. He is interned at Eden Cemetery in Collingdale, Pennsylvania. That's so cool. That was James Fortin. So now, so now we're going to talk about a gentleman named Robert Smalls. Oh, I know of this man. A American politician, publisher, businessman, and maritime pilot. So, Robert Smalls was born in 1839 to Lydia Polite, a woman enslaved by Henry McKee. She gave birth to him in a cabin behind McKee's house, and if you want the address, I got it. Sure. L- lay it on us. At, he was born at 511 Prince Street in Beaufort, South Carolina. Ooh, nice. He grew up in the city under the influence of the low country gula culture of his mother. I hope I pronounced that right. His mother lived as a servant in the house, but she had grown up in the fields. Smalls was favored by McKee over other enslaved people. So his mother worried that he might grow up not understanding the plight of enslaved field workers. And she asked for him to be made to work in the fields and to witness whippings. When he was 12, at the request of his mother, Smalls' master sent him to Charleston to hire out as a laborer for $16 a week, of which he was allowed to keep $1. I'm actually surprised by that. I thought it would have been zero. You would think that. So apparently McKee did like him. Hmm. 
Smalls first worked in a hotel, then became a street lamplighter. In his teen years, his love of the sea led him to find work on Charleston's docks and wharves. He worked as a longshoreman, rigger, and sailmaker, and eventually worked his way up to become a wheelman, which is pretty much a helmsman. Okay. It's not a getaway driver? That's the common term. You see what I mean? A, a boat getaway driver? Well, they, uh, yeah, they didn't have cars back then, so yes. Continue. Now, the cool thing is that he did this job when enslaved people were not allowed to do it. That is significant. That is very significant. So because of all this, he, had, he was very knowledgeable of Charleston Harbor. At age 17, Smalls married Hannah Jones, who was an enslaved hotel maid in Charleston on December 24th, 1856. She was five years older than him and already had two daughters. Their own first child, Elizabeth Lydia Smalls, was born February 1858. And three years later, they had a son, Robert Jr., who unfortunately passed at age. Smalls aimed to pay for their freedom by purchasing them outright, but the price was really high. $800. Oh, my gosh. This was this is equivalent to around $26,056 today. He had managed to save up only about 100 bucks. So at that rate, it would probably take him a couple more decades to reach mm-hmm. $800. And of course, unfortunately, by that time, the price would have gone up. Yes, definitely. So this brings us to the Civil War. In April of 1861, the Civil War begins with the Battle of Fort Sumner in Charleston Harbor. In the fall of 1861, Smalls was assigned to steer the CSS Planter. This was a lightly armed Confederate military transport under the command of Charleston's District Commander Brigadier General Roswell S. Ripley. Planters' duty were to survey waterways, lay mines, and deliver dispatches, troops, and supplies. Smalls piloted the plantern throughout Charleston Harbor and beyond on area rivers and along the South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida coasts. Wow. From Charleston Harbor, he and the planters' crew could see the line of federal blockade ships in the outer harbor seven miles away. Smalls appeared content and had the confidence of the planter's crew and owners, but at some time in April of 1862, he began to hatch a plan, a plan to escape. He discussed this plan with other enslaved people in the crew except for one, because he did not trust them. Probably thought he was a snitch. Could have been. Maybe. Better to keep that stuff under wraps as best you can. Yeah. So on May 12, 1862, the planter traveled 10 miles southwest of Charleston to stop at Coles Island, which was a Confederate post on the Stono River, and it was being dismantled. There, the ship picked up four large guns to transport to a fort in Charleston Harbor. So back in Charleston, the crew loaded 200 pounds of ammunition and 20 cords of firewood onto the planter. On the evening of May 12th, the planter was docked as usual at the wharf below General Ripley's headquarters. Its three Euro-American officers disembarked to spend the night ashore, leaving Smalls and the crew on board, which they did very often. Just as a a note, after everything that happens, the three officers were court-martialed, and two were convicted. Oh, but then later everything was overturned. So before these guys did depart the boat, Smalls asked Captain Rayla if the crew's families could visit, which was occasionally allowed. And he gave his approval on condition that they depart before curfew. When the families, when the families arrived, the men revealed the plan to them. Quote, this was the first the women and children had heard of it. Although Smalls recently had told his wife Hannah, she had known that Smalls longed to escape, but hadn't realized that he was formulating a plan and intended to execute it. She was taken aback, but quickly resigned her composure and told him, 
It is a risk, dear, but you and I and our little ones must be free. I will go, for where you die, I will die. The other women were blessed steadfast. They cried and screamed when they learned what they had stumbled into, and the men struggled to quiet them. Later, once the shock had worn off, these women admitted that they were glad for a chance of freedom. That would be pretty shocking. I mean, you're going through your normal routine knowing that uh, you're in a new new war, right? And all of a sudden you're boarding a ship that, oh, hey, by the way, we're doing this thing that could cost us all of our lives. That immediate feeling, completely natural. And they don't probably know Smalls nearly as well as his wife does, certainly. So is he capable? I mean, can they trust him? All these thoughts would have been running through their minds. Uh, but yeah, just just knowing that he's able to pilot around the coastlines of Florida, Georgia, even South... And, and I think Charleston was the the biggest harbor of the United States and, and subsequently Confederacy. So if he could get around there, he's very capable. So at some point, three crew members pretended to escort the family members back home. But... Instead, they circled around and hid aboard another steamer docked at the North Atlantic Wharf. At around 0300 on May 13th, Smalls and seven of the eight enslaved crewmen made their previously planned escape to the Union blockade ships. Smalls put on the captain's uniform and wore a straw hat similar to the captain's. He sailed the plantern past what was then called Southern Wharf and stopped at another wharf to pick up his wife and children and the families of other crewmen. Smalls then guided the ship past the five Confederate harbor forts without incident because he gave the correct steam whistle signals at checkpoint. That's right. The plantern had been commanded by Captain Charles C. J. Rayla, and Smalls copied his manners and straw hat on deck to fool the Confederate onlookers from shore and the forts. So the plantern sailed past Fort Sumner at about 0430. Uh, We have another quote for you. As the nearly freed slaves approached Fort Sumner, their their apprehension grew. It was the most heavily armed of the Confederate forts and tended to be manned by the most suspicious soldiers. One of the men aboard later said, When we drew near the fort, every man but Robert Smalls fell to his knees, giving way, and the women began crying and praying again. As the plantern approached the fort, several men urged Smalls to give it a wide berth. Smalls refused, saying that such behavior would almost certainly arouse suspicion. He steered the ship among its normal path, slowly, as though he was merely enjoying the early morning air and in no particular. When Fort Sumner flashed the challenge signal, Smalls again gave the correct hand signal. There was a long pause. The fort didn't immediately respond, as Smalls now expected cannon fire to shred the planter at any moment. Finally, the fort signaled that all was well, and Smalls sailed his ship out of the harbor. So the alarm was only raised after the ship was beyond gun range for because rather than turning east towards Morris Island, Smalls headed straight for the Union Navy fleet, replacing the rebel flags with a white bedsheet that had been bought that had been brought by his wife. The plantern had been seen by the USS onward, which was about to fire until a crewman spotted the white flag. In the dark, the sheet was difficult to see, but the sunshine arrived, which allowed them to see it. Ooh, thank goodness for that timing. Yeah. So, a witness's account, quote, Just as number three gun port was being elevated, someone cried out, I see something that looks like a white flag. And true enough, there was something flying on the steamer that would have been white by application, soap and water. As she neared us, we looked in vain for the face of a white man. When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands out onto her deck. Some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping, and others stood looking towards Fort Sumner and muttering all sorts of maledictions against it. And the heart of de Souf, generally. As a steamer came near and under the ste- and under the stern of the onward, one of the colored men stepped forward and taking off his hat shouted, Good morning, sir! I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. That man was Robert Smalls. (laughs) What a cool character. I mean, going through unflappable by Fort Sumner and incredible. 
So the onwards Captain John Frederick Nichols boarded the planter, and Smalls asked for a United States flag to display. He surrendered the planter and its cargo to the United States Navy, and his escape has succeeded. Well done. The planter and description of Smith's of Smalls' actions were forwarded by Nichols to his commander, Captain E.G. Parrott, in addition to its own light guns. Planter carried the four loose artillery pieces from Coles Island, Coles Island and 200 pounds of ammunition. The most valuable piece, however, was the captain's code book containing the Confederate signals and a map of the mines and torpedoes that had been laid in Charleston's harbor. Smith's own extensive knowledge of the Charleston region's waterways and military configurations proved highly valuable. Uh, Parrott again forwarded the planter to Flag Officer Samuel Francis DuPont at Port Royal, describing Smalls as very intelligent. Smalls gave detailed information about Charleston's defenses to DuPont, commander of the blockading fleet, and federal officers were surprised to learn from Smalls that, contrary to their calculations, only a few thousand troops remained to protect the area, the rest having been sent to Tennessee and Virginia. They also learned that Cole's Island fortifications on Charleston's southern flank were being abandoned and were without protection. This intelligence allowed Union forces to capture Cole Island and its string of batteries without a fight on May 20th, a week after Small's escape. The Union would hold the Stono Inlet as a base for the remaining three years of the war. DuPont was impressed and wrote the following to the Navy Secretary in Washington, quote, Robert, the intelligent slave and pilot of the boat, who performed this bold feat so skillfully, informed me of the capture of the Sumpner gun, presuming it would be a matter of interest. He is superior to any who have come into our lines, intelligent as many of them have. Smalls, having just turned 23, quickly became known in the North as a hero for his daring exploit. Newspapers and magazines reported his actions, and the U.S. Congress passed a bill awarding Smalls and his crewmen the prize money for the planter. Wow. Mm-hmm. Southern newspapers demanded harsh discipline for the Confederate officers, whose joint shore leave had allowed Smalls and his men to steal the boat. Smalls' share of the prize money came to $1,500. Whoa. Which is equivalent to about $43,970 today. Immediately after the capture, Smalls was invited to travel to New York to help raise money for formerly enslaved people. But DuPont vetoed the proposal, and Smalls began to serve in the Union Navy, especially with his detailed knowledge of the mines laid near Charleston. However, with the encouragement of Major General David Hunter, the Union commander at Port Royal, Smalls went to Washington, D.C. in August of 1862 with the Reverend Mansfield French, who was a Methodist minister who had helped found Wilberforce University in Ohio and had been sent by the American Missionary Association to help formerly enslaved people at Port Royal. Now, they wanted to persuade Lincoln and the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, to permit African-American men to fight for the Union, even though Lincoln had previously rescinded orders by Hunter and Generals Fremont and Sherman to mobilize African-American troops. Stanton soon signed an order permitting up to 5,000 African-Americans to enlist in the, United, in the Union forces at Port Royal. Those who did were organized as the 1st and 2nd South Carolina regiments. Colored. Smalls worked as a civilian with the Navy until March of 1863 when he was transferred to the Army. By his own account, Smalls was present at 17 major battles and engagements. In so after the planter was captured, it required some repairs, which were performed locally and went into the Union service near Fort Pulaski. The boat was valued for its shallow draft, which means it could go up and down rivers and places where deeper draft vessels couldn't go. Smalls was made pilot of the Crusader under Captain Alexander Rind in June of that year's, and he was piloting the Crusader on a disto in Wall in Wide Mallow Sound when the Plantern returned to service, and an infantry regiment engaged in the Battle of. Siblin's Bluff at the head of 
that river. He continued to pilot the Crusader and the Planter. So while enslaved, he had assisted in laying mines along the coast and river. Now as a pilot, he helped find and remove them, uh, which serviced the blockade between Charleston and and Beaufort. He was also also present when the Plantern was fired upon at several fights at Adams Run on the Dowho River and the battles at Rockville at John's Island and the Second Battle of Pocatagillo. I'm sure I butchered the heck out of that. <laughs> he was made pilot of the ironclad USS Keokuk, which was again under Captain Rind, and he took part in the attack on Fort Sumner on April 7th, 1863, which was a preamble to the Second Battle of Fort Sumter later that uh-huh. fall. The Keokuk took 96 hits and retired for the night sinking the next morning. Smalls and much of the crew moved to the Ironside and the fleet returned to Hilton Head. In June of 1863, Hunter was replaced as commander of the Department of the South by Quincy Adams Gilmore with Gilmore's arrival. Smalls was transferred to the Quartermaster's Department. Smalls was then pilot of the USS Isaac Smith, which was later recommissioned in the Confederate Navy the stone, though, in which the expedition on Morris Island. The Union troops then took the southern end of the island, and Smalls was put in charge of the lighthouse inlet as pilot. On December 1st, 1863, Smalls was piloting the plant here under Captain James Nickerson on Folly Island Creek when Confederate batteries at Successionville opened fire. Nickerson fled the pilot house from the coal bunker, and... Smalls refused to surrender, fearing that the African-American crewmen would be not would not be treated as prisoners of war and instead be executed. Yep. Smalls entered. Yeah. Smalls entered the pilot house and took him out of the boat and piloted it to safety. For this, he was reportedly promoted by Gilmore to the rank of captain and was made acting captain of the Plantier. In May of 1864, he was voted an unofficial delegate to the Republican National Convention in Baltimore. And later that spring, Smalls piloted the Plantier to Philadelphia for an overhaul. In Philadelphia, he supported what was known as the Port Royal Experiment. This was an effort to raise money to support the education and development of formerly enslaved people. At the onset of the Civil War, Smalls could not read or write, but he achieved literacy in Pennsylvania. In 1864, Smalls was seated in a streetcar in Pennsylvania and was ordered to give his seat to a Euro-American passenger. Rather than ride on the open overflow platform, he just left the car. This incident of humiliating a heroic veteran was cited in the debate that resulted in the Pennsylvania legislators passing of a bill to integrate public transportation in Pennsylvania in 1867. And in December of 1864, Smalls and the planter moved to support William T. Sherman's army in Savannah, Georgia, at the destination point of his march to the sea. Smalls returned with the planter to Charleston Harbor in April of 1865 for the ceremonial rising of the American flag again at Fort Sumter. He was discharged on June 11, 1865. Um, other vessels that he piloted during the war included the Huron, the Paul Jones, and he continued to pilot the planter in serving a humanitarian mission of taking food and supplies to freed men who had lost their homes and livelihoods during the war. On September 30th, the planter entered the service of the Freemans. All right, so we're going to continue with uh, Robert, Mr. Robert Smalls next time. And we're also going to talk about some other notable African-Americans from the United States Navy as well. So we want to thank you guys for joining us. And uh, XO, why don't you take us out? Uh, Yeah, can do. Um, Number one, thank you, Dale, for this series. I think it's um, not something you usually hear about. And uh, some of these exploits are just so incredible. And I, I was, a lot of this information was new for me, so thank you. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening to us, number one. Uh, we're so glad you're here on this journey with us. 
Uh, if you ever want to get in contact with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Uh, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, alternatively, you can also reach us via Twitter. I'm just going to go ahead and call it Twitter. I think that's everybody understands. Uh, handle is at usnhistorypod. Uh, we're also on YouTube. So if you want to listen to us in a, on a different web application, we're there. And uh, we also have a Discord. Uh, you can find where to join that in the show notes. And if you do, we'll welcome you. And we can talk about anything you want, Navy or otherwise. Um, I think that's everything. Uh, rate and review us if you could. That helps us. And uh, if you want to tell a friend or two or family member, hey, I heard this interesting thing, please share with them. I think um, it, learning more about the history that we share is vital. And so, oh, also, if we said something wrong, let us know. Uh, contact us, like I said earlier. So uh, there we go. And um, thank you. So, Captain, it's all yours. And rest assured, if we said something wrong, the XO will be severely, severely punished. So with that well, being said, we want to wish... Appropriately so. So with that being said, we're going to wish you all a fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank <laughs> you.